I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. I don't much remember the humans on Polka Dot Door. The Polka Dot Door, the That's nothing against them. It's just that when you're acting opposite a seven-foot-tall living portmanteau of a polka dot and a kangaroo, you don't much stand a chance, especially not when it comes to leaving a lifelong impression on a toddler's imagination. Polkaroo! Did you hear something? Polkaroo! It sounded like the polkaroo. Hi, polkaroo! Now what are you up to today? Polkaroo! Polkaroo! But recently, when a couple of the former hosts, Carrie Loring and Jim Codrington, did a panel discussion just downstairs from the Canada Land offices and were invited to sing the theme song, it triggered deep, tingly memories I'd forgotten I had. Now, if you're not from Ontario, chances are good that none of this means anything to you, that it's some weird central Canadian cult, to which I'd say... Let us have this. In terms of distinct cultural touchstones, Ontario doesn't have a lot. But chances are also good that there's something, at least one thing, in the recesses of your mind that would similarly cause you chills. Depending on your age, it could be Mr. Dressup, The Friendly Giant, Book Mice. There was something called Rocket Robin Hood, apparently, that really seems to stir the Gen Xers in our office. A couple years ago, when Stephen Colbert asked Tiffany Haddish, you get one song to listen to for the rest of your life. What is it? She took less than three seconds to answer. Skin a rinky dinky dink, skin a rinky do. I love you. That's from the Elephant Show. It's my favorite song. That is delightful for the rest you. of your life. Yes. Now, it's not surprising that anyone would be nostalgic for their childhood, but it is kind of surprising thinking about how good Canadian children's television was. Like how we formed shared cultural memories around so many of these shows in a way that we seldom have for narrative programming aimed at adults. Or for Canadian movies, for that matter. Although, yes, yes, this is one of those things where it's it's different in Quebec. Okay, yes. But if it's very un-Canadian to be impressed by and proud of our scripted English-language TV output, it is extremely Canadian that we just let so much hard evidence of it disappear. In some ways, it was weird experimental programming that was often considered disposable. I mean, it was for kids. 
and so it was often disposed of. But someone who's very much made it his mission to preserve all of this visual culture before the tapes disintegrate is a guy named Ed Conroy, who runs Retro Ontario, which is this thing that evolved from a YouTube channel into a larger historical project to keep this stuff alive and available so we can pull up the clips and reassure ourselves that these were not things we only encountered in our dreams. The Myzeum of Toronto, that's M-Y-S-E-U-M, Myzeum, is a small nonprofit that runs a gallery space in the basement of 401 Richmond Street, which is where Candleland is, running rotating exhibits that showcase the city's past in a way its government has never really cared to. The current exhibit, curated by Ed Conroy, is Mr. Dress-Up to Degrassi, 42 Years of Legendary Toronto Kids TV. It was supposed to close next month, but has been extended through September. It doesn't pretend to be comprehensive. It's only shows made in Toronto, only shows made in live action, only shows made from the 1950s through the 1990s. But even within those constraints, that's still a lot of puppets. The grogs from YTV greet you at the entrance. Inside, characters from Today's Special and Book Mice are positioned opposite an array of ten old TVs playing early iterations of Degrassi, which are perpendicular to a replica polka dot door and around the corner from a reproduced tickle trunk. So come along with me and with Jesse and our colleague Sherry Sutran, who were born in the 80s, 70s, and 90s respectively, as Ed Conroy gives us a tour of Canadian Kids TV from Mr. Dress Up to Degrassi and beyond. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Emily Nimitz, Connor Goodfellow, Mike LeDuc, Marla Klein-Kolomaya, Keith Lee, James Wood, Dave Gallant, and Jeff. My name is Jeff McDonald. I'm a part-time journalist living most of the time in Vancouver. I support Canada Land because it provides a needed perspective on how news is made, who makes it, and how it gets to us. I find the hosts and guests' conversations sharpen my perspective on issues that I'm aware of and others that are new to me which I don't see in the mainstream media. So where did this decades-long burst of creativity come from? Why did it end, or did it end? Why were or are Canadians so good at this particular kind of television? Well, it kind of starts with a guy named Fred Rainsbury. This guy it is fasc- endlessly fascinating to Fasc- me. Fred Rainsbury, who was a school teacher from Enniskillen. Mm. And he was writing about the medium of television like way before anybody else. It was on anybody's radar. And obviously we talk a lot about Marshall McLuhan. We talk a lot about Moses Neimer, these sort of intellectuals that were talking about what television was capable of as a, as a form of communication. Rainsbury was talking about it specifically what it could do to help children and it could bring social change, it could educate them. And this was a time when really television was seen as you know, the idiot box, and it, it was going to make children really stupid, and, and they shouldn't look at it. And so I don't still quite understand how he was then hired by the CBC to take over their children's programming, but it was an incredibly risky thing to do, to hand over the reins to this guy who really had no experience in, in the field of entertainment. He was just, a, just pushing pencils at a schoolhouse. Uh, and he was the guy that went down to Wisconsin and found Bob Hummy, who was the friendly giant, mm. brought him back to Toronto. He went to uh, Pennsylvania, got uh, Fred Rogers and Ernie Coombs, brought them back to Toronto. And they all worked together. They sort of workshopped this idea that uh, children's entertainment shouldn't be condescending. Because a lot of the American programs at the time, they spoke down to children. They sort of said, hey, kids, this is how it is. And Rogers and certainly Bob Hummy were all about talking to the kids as if they were their friends. A giant wearing it. Look up. Who is this giant? Well, it's me. I'm a friendly giant. Mm-hmm. This is the first time you've been to my farm, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Did you know that I can reach way down over my farm and play with the horses and cows? Just the way you play with puppies and kittens. See, I can pet this horse. 
people instantly responded to that. I mean, I think it was like right out the gate, this was a new way of, of doing things. Now, you look at children's television from anywhere now, it, it is very much like that. But this was a radical innovation at the time. Exactly. I mean, obviously, we talk a lot about, or, you know, a lot of study about how Sesame Street, like the late 1960s, took a lot of research into pedagogy and preparing it, or how, obviously, Mr. Rogers and his approach, but, I mean, this exhibit and what you've make the case here and talk about Fredericksburg is that a lot of this, these innovations, a lot of this thinking, a lot of these discussions started at the CBC <laughs> yeah. about a decade or two earlier in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, again, with Sesame Street, we, we talk about Henson getting accredited with, and, and I mean, he was a genius in what he did with puppets, but what John Conway was doing with Uncle Chichimus, you know, that was a, a, a puppet character that was meant for adults. So it was about sort of political satire um, with puppetry. And then it sort of caught on with children and they scaled it down so that it was a kid's program. But he was you know, taking cameras off of the tripod and, and going and shooting the puppets from behind and getting puppets walking around. I mean, this was, again, nobody was shooting them like that. And uh, he's kind of been lost to time, unfortunately, so. What, what are we looking at here? Which, uh, what program is this? Uh, this looks like Howdy Doody. Say, kids, what time is it? It's the 2222nd, that's 2222, two, two, two. Howdy Doody Show, starring Howdy Doody and Bubble Bob Smith. There was a Canadian version of Howdy Doody, and that's a very interesting story because there was a segment in the Canadian Howdy Doody show called Mr. X. And Mr. X was a puppet who was a time traveler. And the, the whole idea was that they would show these films as filler. And so they would show old footage and Mr. X would go in his time machine and go back and he, he would introduce the historic footage. Now, at the time, the CBC, I believe, uh, the, the head of the CBC was a guy named Sidney Newman who a few years later was poached by the BBC to go and create shows there. And he came up with a show called Doctor Who, uh, which went on to become kind of a big show. But a lot of people believe that the, uh, the impetus of Doctor Who was actually Mr. X from this sort of really little seen Canadian version of Howdy Doody. What was it about the CBC that led to these discussions happening there before anywhere else? I mean, again, there's no real evidence, but what I suspect was happening was because television was new, it was seen as the lowest on the food chain. So film, uh, theater, radio were where all the real professionals went, and television was kind of like, if you're junk, and then if you're in children's television, that was even below grown-up television. Uh, and that allowed for just a lot of experimentation. A lot of, again, people that were school teachers, people that were coming from these different uh, backgrounds were trying stuff that, again, now, because everything's very controlled and, and, and very bureaucratic, it, would, it, it really, we wouldn't see anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's definitely what you describe is, I guess, the opposite of well, most businesses, and certainly the opposite of, I guess, how people characterize the CBC at its yes. most frustrating, perhaps, is, yeah, everything is controlled and bureaucratic. And to think of it, that at one point it was a scrappy, at least the, at least the television part, by, I guess, when it launched, because obviously it started as a radio broad network in the 30s, maybe, right, right. and then it started in television in the early 50s. And I think it's something you pointed out a couple times here. I think it's behind me, how they started when CBC Ontario launched they actually broadcast the logo upside down at the very beginning. That's right. Yeah. And, then, and then amazingly, it went from the upside down logo, the very first thing that you saw was Uncle Chichimus. So I love that uh, Toronto television, Canadian television, started with a puppet. You know, I think that, that was a neat uh, start for this exhibit. So what, yeah, I about, mentioned Uncle Chichimus, and there's that slot thing there about the kidnapping of Uncle Chichimus. Could you just tell that story? <laughs> so Uncle Chichimus was this sort of crusty yet benign, uh, grumpy, green uh, puppet. And he started, it was for grown-ups, it eventually became a kid's show, but he became sort of a, a huge superstar for kids. And, you know, again, this was a time before mass merchandising, so if it had been now, there would be T-shirts and plush dolls and all this stuff, but there was just the puppet. And... John Conway, the operator, was drinking down at some tavern on King Street, and he left the Uncle Chishimus puppet in his car with the, uh, I forget the female character's uh, name, the, the puppet. Hollyhock? Hollyhock, that's right. 
and uh, they were stolen from the back of his car and he didn't have any backup. So this was a huge problem because they were shooting this program every day, Monday to Friday, and it was like the most popular kids show. So the Toronto Star at the time, it was like the front page story, who's got Chichmas? And it became this big thing about finding him again. They never actually did get him back, but it, it remains sort of one of the great unsolved mysteries is where did it end up? What happened to the program? Yeah. I mean, it ran its time. You know, he built some replacement puppets. Okay, Jonathan breaking in here to add that about an hour after we recorded this, Jesse learned that Larry Mann, the appropriately named actor who played Uncle Chichimus's human foil, was in fact a cousin to his great-great-grandmother. And also, actually, that Larry Mann also actually did the voice of Yukon Cornelius in the Rankin-Bass Real Threadnose Reindeer. But, okay, there was actually an interesting story. They, uh, do you remember the actor? He did a lot of television commercials at the time for Bell. His name escapes me. But he was the only human character on Uncle Chichimus. And when the puppet was missing, while they were sort of buying time to build the replacement puppet, he started to play uh, like a Columbo kind of character. And he was trying to solve the mystery on the show. So, I mean, it was kind of like weird meta stuff for a kid's program, you know, in, in the early 50s. But because they were live, because they were doing it every day, they, they had to come up with something. Given the this was a crusty green puppet on Canadian television, has Ed the Sock ever cited Chichimus as, a, as an inspiration? or as a... not, not that I'm aware of. I mean, Steve Kersner, Aka Ed the Sock, is definitely a TV nerd like me, so he would certainly know about that. There was something else, I think, here. Like, when I first was looking at this, oh, Mr. Yeah. Rogers, M-I-S-T-E-R-O-G-E-R-S is one word, well, hosted by Fred Rogers, was a CBC show that started in 1961, which is several years before he started on PBS. So is Fred Rainsbury who found Mr. Rogers just somewhere in in the States? And yeah, I, I mean, one of the, you know, the, the, the absolute shocking, actually not shocking, but just terrible uh, whitewashes is, is the Tom Hanks movie about Mr. Rogers because they skip over that whole part of the story. They don't talk about Fred Rainsbury. They don't talk about how that character that became so beloved by Americans was actually crafted in Toronto at the CBC. So I, I believe Fred Rogers was, you know, doing puppet shows in malls or some, you know, something really uh, niche like that. And he saw him and said, you know what, this would work as a television program. And he started to work with him on this idea of communication, looking directly into the camera speaking softly, but also speaking as, as if you're speaking to a friend as opposed to a child. Oh, am I glad to see you. I've been doing a little bicycle riding today. After that one that was in here yesterday, you know the one that didn't go anywhere? I thought I'd just try a real one. It took me a long time to learn how to ride a bike. Whew. The numbers of times I fell down. You don't learn to ride a bike unless you fall down. Did you know that? Mm -mm. Yeah, just a few years later, as it notes here by 1965, 92% of Canadian households had television sets. A greater percentage than had telephones, automobiles, and showers. It is interesting to think how quickly television grew, basically. Yeah, it absolutely did explode uh, in that first uh, decade and a bit. Now, I think comparable now, everyone has multiple television sets in their house. So, I mean, back then you had one. Um, and really, we have television sets in our pocket. So, I mean, I don't even know how you could get a number on it anymore, right? Maybe as the expectations for television were raised, as it became, I mean, it was still experimental, but as it became less of this, like, what do we do here in front, dancing in front of a camera? What was the next level they took that to? CTV obviously becomes the second English language network in, in Canada. And their flagship children's show was Uncle Bobby. Hello, hello. It's nice to have you with us. Hello, hello. We've got it. Hi, everybody. It's Uncle Bobby with Let's Model a Story, Ruth Winkler. And Ron Leonard, who's always got a few more tricks up his sleeve. And if we can't go to the zoo, the zoo will come to you. And oh, yes, we mustn't forget Cy Leonard and Happy, too who's just been dying to pose for our bird artist, Barry Mackay. And Traffic Officer John will be on hand to bring us up to date on the latest safety rule. So it was also an uncle. 
was there a fracture <laughs> that's right another uncle and uncle bobby was filmed at the agent court studios in scarborough and what's kind of wild about uncle bobby was he was this uh, notorious uh, uh drunk uh, from the UK, and he, you know, he he drank a lot, and the actor or the actor? no, the actor. Oh, okay. And so Uncle Bobby has a horrible reputation now because people say, oh, you know, it smelled like scotch, and he would have police officers on the program. So it was a, it was a very law and order kid show. Elmer the Elephant, who we have over there, I don't know if you remember that, was a school program. Yeah that was fostering this idea of safety, uh, street safety. And if someone in your school, you know, got hit by a car or didn't cross the road without looking, you'd lose the flag. So this idea of everybody, you know, taking pride in the flag at their school. But that bust of Elmer was on the Uncle Bobby show every day and, the, and they talked about Elmer. So, it, you know, it was a kind of about as conservative a show as you can get. However, it was the very first program in, in North America that, that had uh, a signer on it. So, you know, at the same time, it was kind of progressive as well as being uh, kind of in the, in the mold of the older shows. Was it regularly sign language yeah. interpretation? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. My thoughts coming through here is like the different levels of, I guess, cultural penetration of like which things in here would only known by people in Toronto, which things would have only been known by people in Ontario, which things would have been known by Canada, which things were known globally. And often that sort of surprised me of things I thought might have been wider, maybe had a smaller audience or things that I thought had a smaller audience. Oh, I didn't realize this also aired on like Nickelodeon. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly when you get into the, into the 80s, those programs that were aired uh, in America on the American broadcast, they're known around the world. I mean, but that being said, programs like Polka Dot Door were sold around the world. It never ceases to amaze me on my YouTube channel that I get uh, correspondence from people like from far-flung regions of the world that grew up watching shows that were made in Toronto that you'd never imagine have ended up where they did. But again, it's because we don't have any history of this stuff. Like TV Ontario did, notoriously did not keep any records of sales around the world. So it's, it's, it's trying to get all this information together can be challenging. Looking at like the, the most popular videos on your channel, I mean, the top things are like sort of like news coverage or like ads that people around the world would have seen or news coverage that people around the world would have seen like CTV reports on the Titanic being found. But, but after, once you get past that, the top scripted stuff is mostly either like children's programs or like children's advertisements. How much of that do you think is just people gravitating towards those particular memories versus how much you think it is Ontario had this unique visceral culture that is not available elsewhere. Like, is, is this like that, that is what we did best. Yeah, I mean, I think it's both of those things. I think it's a couple of things, really. It's the fact that our content was not widely available. So if you want to watch Sesame Street, if you want to watch uh, any of those sort of big American kid shows, they're online, they're on DVD. They've been repeated nonstop since they were made. But up here, because of a variety of reasons, it's not like there was a conspiracy to, to withhold it. Uh, it was arcane contracts. It was the CRTC. There's a, a whole host of reasons why these things didn't sort of live on after they ended. So the, I think there's an element of that on YouTube. It allowed people to watch these things again that they hadn't seen in, in 30, 40 years. Um, I think just because you're young, you sop up this stuff, and we are talking about a time before phones, before the internet, when you know an episode of a kids show might have a profound effect on your understanding of something. You know, we talk a lot about the episode of uh, today's special uh, that's about death, uh, and a whole bunch of people, you know, Generation X uh, Canadians, learned about death from a puppet. Uh, hi there, Jody. Oh, hi, Sam. Okay, it's clear. You don't have to fly away. You'll get better and then we can play. That would be wonderful, Muffy, but... But what? I'm dying. You're dying? You're lying! No. I told you I'm old. And it's time for me to die. But I'll always remember you, Muffy. No. 
So I think when you're older and, and you know, now we have access to all of this information, it's quite remarkable to go back and look at it and, and see, oh, you know, this was ahead of its time or this wasn't as maybe as powerful as I remember it because, you know, the memory cheats. And I think that's why, you know, as a, as a visualist, as an archivist, I'm most interested in the footage because that doesn't lie. Our memories lie. So, yeah, a bit of background. I mean, why I think that series is very interesting is uh, TVO was trying to pitch the idea of a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week children's network as far back as the mid-'70s, right? They, they said there's a need for this uh, in Canada. They were at the vanguard of production, so they said we should run it. They were referring to it as Galaxy. It was going to be called Galaxy. And, of course, they submitted it to the CRTC, who, who turned around and said there's no way, there's not enough interest, there's no advertising, there's no money. TVO had been building sort of a war chest to pay for Galaxy, which when they got rejected, then said, let's dump it into today's special and basically today's special will be our, our biggest production to date. And they had taken all their learnings of working with curriculum and working with uh, educators and they took it, basically took it out on the road and filmed a pilot, but then uh, went with hundreds and hundreds of children and parents and educators and they all got feedback and then they'd reshoot it and reshoot it. So they, I mean, it was, again, very standard practice now, but at the time, the amount of work that went into that pilot episode was unheard of. And then they sort of landed where they wanted. The idea was that it was a department store and at night, this mannequin uh, would put a hat on and he would come alive. And it's a very, you know, again, it's like a Star Trek trope, like data, like what does it mean to be human? That's sort of what the, the main storyline was. Uh, but the mouse, who uh, Muffy the Mouse, was, was uh, voiced by Nina Keogh, uh, she was kind of the entry point for the, for the viewers. So she was like the child who you would sort of see everything through her eyes. And so that episode I referred to earlier where uh, she befriends a butterfly, a monarch butterfly comes into the store, and then it dies. And she's totally distraught. Uh, and there's another episode where a friend of Sam the Night Watchman comes by to hang out and he's an alcoholic and he assaults Muffy. And, you know, these were pretty heavy things for a kid's show that was on, you know, at six o'clock before dinner. Um, it was slightly terrifying. I used to watch it all the time. Yeah, terrifying for sure. Yeah. Because um, it was at nighttime too. Yeah. Like every time you saw the shots, it, it was dark. Um, once in a while, they would go do location shooting on Young Street. Um, but yeah, I mean, I grew up in Toronto, so I went to Simpsons, and I always thought that was really cool. I thought it was, like, really happening at night. Um, <laughs> this, uh, you know, just for people listening who can't see this, like, this is what stopped me in my tracks when I first set foot in here with my kids a month or two ago, was the uh, these three puppets, both because it's, like, plucked a, a string of memory and, and horror, uh, but, like, <laughs> they are grotesque. They're, they're really weird-looking puppets, but... Like, I don't, I don't, do people find them weird who didn't grow up with them? Like, they're like, Sam the Night Watchmen. Yeah, at the time, like, when you're a kid, they, they did not register as weird at all. But, of course, as I look at them now, it's like, oh, these are kind of freaky things. But that was like, oh, yeah, Sam the Night Watchmen. It's like this, it's a human, it's more human than, say, a Muppet would be. But it's still very much a pasty pink puppet with blonde hair and a blonde mustache and a Night Watchman's coat, sort of. I don't know. And then a little mouse girl and a dress and then I can't remember who, who's the woman puppet there. That's Miss Pennypacker. This is no ordinary tea party. This is a Pennypacker tea party. A Pennypacker tea party is a tea party to the nth degree. Pennypacker tea is a wondrous brew served sparingly to a chosen few. People shout and blare on trumpets. In praise of my biscuits What's interesting is the other puppets, the mouse and Sam, were designed by a lady by the name of Noreen Young. And she's another great sort of force in, in children's television, did puppets for almost everything. But Nina built Pennypacker, and Pennypacker was sort of the person that boxed everything up. And I remember being scared of Miss Pennypacker in 1982, so I, I think she's definitely always been slightly menacing. Because she looked different, yeah. right, obviously. From yeah, she looks like she's from a bit of a different puppet universe than the other two. <laughs> yeah, right. Today's special aired on South African TV. Yes, yes, it so Could you talk about that? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know much beyond there was a lot of trouble because it was this idea that a, you know, a black girl and a white guy were friends. 
Like that was an issue when it aired in South Africa. Again, there's there's not a, a huge amount of documentation about these things, which is unfortunate now, but they certainly caused a lot of outrage at the time. What's the most surprising place these shows were aired? You mentioned people coming from around the world saying they've seen it. Like, what's the craziest place? Yeah, so place? I mean, I, I've, I've heard from people in Fiji that watched uh, Polka Dot Door. Um, I, I mean, obviously, Things like Degrassi uh, were incredibly popular in places like Australia and in the UK, uh, probably because they were kind of like that British kitchen sink, uh, you know, drama, right? It was shot like cinema verite, and it was more like a documentary than it was a, a fictional program. But you know, it's it's funny too because we have the self-esteem problem in Canada with our pop culture, and we're we're almost embarrassed by it. And we think, oh, it, it's a Canadian movie; it's going to be shit, or it doesn't look as good. But it's quite amazing when you see it in in other countries, and they really respond to it, and they think it's better than American stuff. Have we traditionally been better and more innovative at children's programming than it's than at other things? Absolutely. I, I mean, I always look at it as children's programs comedy and news. Uh, I think those, those genres, uh, certainly in, in Toronto, uh, when you look at what was going on, in the, certainly in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, uh, the rest of the world finally caught up, but we were ahead, way ahead of the curve, I think. And I, again, the evidence is there for those that, that wish to look at it, and we can do that now. But yeah, I mean, I think the children's programming has been given a raw deal that, you know, that it's not better remembered. So hopefully we're redressing that. And I think it's been a, a testament to the powers, the number of people coming in here and, and having real emotional responses and, and crying, but like crying happy tears because just things they haven't thought about in a long time. And, and again, seeing it in the context uh, of all sort of, I think the remit to me was like an atom bomb of nostalgia. Like, let's just put it all out there. Is there anything specific in terms of people coming here and having big emotional responses or stories that uh, comes to mind? I mean, I'm not, I'm not here every day, but I'm hearing from some of the people that work here that, yeah, there's people that be walking down uh, Richmond and they see Elmer and then they come in and they start looking around and they end up, you know, on the steps in front of the polka dot door, like bawling their eyes out. Um, but then, you know, leaving a huge donation and saying thank you so much for, for putting the show on. And I mean, I've always, I've known that because of the response on YouTube and on social media that it is, it, it is very popular. It is something people want to know more about. And they, I think because there's so much emphasis put on the American stuff, there's a want to, to put our stuff up there too and say, you know what, we were, we were doing it just as good and in some cases better. One thing that we sort of, I guess, spun off or derived from Americans over Sesame Street. I mean, we talk here about how, obviously, Sesame Street started in, like, 68 or 69, and then Sesame Street Canada started in 1972. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, Sesame Street, when it showed up in 69, it was like when the Beatles showed up. It, it just changed everything. Uh, the editing, the the musical numbers, the animation, the puppetry. It was it was just like on all fronts. It was the the most incredible uh, shakeup really of of the children's genre, and of course it was popular in Canada. It was being shown on CBC, but there was a lot of concern because of the segments uh, that were in Spanish, and they said, well, this is this is no use to Canadian children, right? And it's like I don't know, seven or eight minutes of every episode was was dedicated to that. We're waiting for a friend of ours. Yeah. You gotta guess. Look at all these clues. Let's see now. The sign says, Bienvenido, and that means welcome in Spanish. Whoever you're waiting for speaks Spanish, and I speak Spanish. Therefore, I can... So whoever it was within the CBC said, well, why don't we start to create our own segments that are in French? La lettre D. Danger. Danger. And they worked with the Sesame Workshop and they started to create this Canadian version. Then over time, they started to do more and they started to make puppets. And it was Clive Vanderberg who was tasked with doing that. He ended up making Today's Special and Cucumber and other programs. And they eventually called it Sesame Park. And the thinking was that in America, kids all play on the street, but in Canada, kids play in a park. So that was why they called it that. 
I mean, that was one of those, one of those things that I remember reading, read. That I was like, that sounds so perfect that I want to double check that. Where, where was the source on that? Where did who, like, where did that come? I, I guess the title. Yeah, yeah. Clive Vandenberg, wow. the man himself. Yeah, he's still around, and I mean, again, he's. I consider him an auteur of television. Uh, all of the stuff that he did has the same kind of qualities. There's a lot of emphasis on music. Again, the brilliance of the American Sesame Street was that they got funk players to come in and do stuff like that, and they had Stevie Wonder. Boy, Stevie, you know, you really play good. Do you think you could teach me something, hmm? please? I got, please? I, got, I got something just for you, girl. Oh, yeah? Oh, good, just good. for you. Just oh, go for ahead, go ahead. It goes like this. Oh boy! Here, we do it now. I'm going to do it. Okay, here we go. Now we gotta try. It was almost right. Almost, put, not close, huh? Gotta put a little more feeling into it. Little more feeling. Little more feeling. Not my fingers help. And I think that's what inspired Clive Vanderberg when he did Today's Special. You know, he had Oscar Peterson come in and, you know, there's this amazing episode where Oscar Peterson's hanging out with the Today's Special crew and they're doing cover versions of the theme song with him. You know, the Canadian brass and very big believers in using music as well to get in the shows. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I'm not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. It sounds very trite now, but I think, too, a lot of, a lot of the multiculturalism that was happening in Toronto was, of course, manifesting itself in these shows. And it wasn't that they were sitting around saying, well, we need to do it like this. It just, that's what people that worked at TV Ontario looked like. And I know, I mean, again, it's not recorded, but there were issues with things like Polka Dot Door when they would have two hosts of color at the same time in the 80s when that was being watched across the border. Because if you're in Detroit, if you're in Buffalo, you can pick up the signal. And, you know, Sesame Street obviously had a, had a huge African-American cast, but there was never an episode where it was just the African-American hosts. But that was happening on Polka Dot Door. And then a program like Razzle Dazzle, which... Uh, Razzle Dazzle was like a news magazine program that was on every day. And here's Al and Michelle. 
Say, kids, when you're writing with your pen and ink, does this often happen to you? Do you get a great big ink smudge right on your sleeve? Does that leaky pen ruin your best shirt? A huge, huge sensation. And I think it was really interesting because they were doing uh, user-generated content. Like, right off the bat, that was baked into the, 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 the idea of the show is that it was for kids by kids. So their kids are, are sending in jokes, kids are sending in skits, kids are sending in all their ideas. They're doing them, but they also had their, their studio audience, they would bus in kids from Toronto schools. So you go to a taping of Razzle Dazzle. But, yeah. Okay. Uh, Nina Keogh, who of course, uh, the great puppeteer, her, her father created the puppet uh, Howard the Turtle, who was kind of the mascot of Razzle Dazzle. Hey, guess what? I've got 10,000 bones in my body. Know why? I had sardines for lunch. <laughs> and so she remembers as a child being in the studio audience and looking around and going, wow, like it's, 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 it's a, a reflection of, of the city, right? And again, these were things that when the camera would pan across the audience, you're seeing a whole bunch of different Toronto people of different cultures. In the American program, certainly in the border towns, there just wasn't anything like that. So these were things that at the time would have been quite probably alarming to some people in America. These albums are all yours as well. I mean, I guess they released the LPs for everything at one point. Concert of Concerts, starring the friendly giant, Mr. Dressup, Sharon Lowe Blam, One Elephant, Deux Elephants, uh, Mr. Dressup and Friends. Wow. Were these things you collected at the time, or are these things you got later in life? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, you know, full disclosure, I'm a garage sale thrift, thrifter. I uh, spend a lot of time uh, going to estate sales, and I've always been interested in, in, in records. But what, what I like about this is, you know, nowadays when you're making a kid's television program, uh, the very first thing they talk about is merchandise. You know, it's like the show comes out of the merchandise. Whereas back then, it was, it, nobody even thought about it. It was like an afterthought. And so the records were kind of the only thing. If you, you know, if you were really into Mr. Dress Up and you wanted to have some part of it in your house, that, that was about the best. You know, there was no Casey and Finnegan plush dolls, you know, at, at Zeller's. What um, kind of music is on these? Uh, it's mostly music from from the episodes. So you know they 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 do songs uh, about Canada or you know songs about certain certain things. But I mean this yeah this stuff was huge. Sam the record band. I have a picture somewhere that we, we wanted to put in where you know that Mr. Dressup record was like the number one record that week. Could beat the Rolling Stones or something. But you know, it was kind of kind of wild. How much is it reasonable to expect people outside of Ontario to know about TV? The shows TVO created or know about TVO? Or is this like is that really just like this? this these memories belong to people from Ontario? I think obviously the channel is, is very ingrained in, in people that are from Ontario, but those programs, a lot of those programs were very, very successful around the world. I mean, I talk a lot about today's special being the number one program on Nickelodeon for about eight years, which led to people thinking it was an American program. Um, Polka Dot Dora was, you know, as we said, was sold around the world. And a lot of these things ended up on PBS in America. So you have a lot of Americans that woke up early on Sunday morning and saw Read All About It, you know, in, te in Texas somewhere and probably thought, what is this? You know, it would have just been the strangest thing ever. Yeah, I mean, TVO was a public broadcaster with a much more explicit educational mandate. Bill Davis's idea about this is what the future of education will be. It will be through the television. It will be through screens. They will eventually come to replace teachers. But it ended up creating, I guess, that, uh, that's a similar sort of environment to what you described at the CBC in the early 50s of experimentation of like, oh shit, we have this time to fill and we have resources. What is the most fun and interesting and edifying thing we can do for children? And so I guess Polka Dot Door is the first big success out of that? Yeah, I mean, Polka Dot Door was very interesting uh, background because there was a program on BBC in, in uh, the UK called Play School. And they really liked it, and they wanted to show oh, it yeah, on. That's a remake too. That's I always yeah, forget so, that. Yeah, so they want, but, but remake, instead yeah. of just buying Play School, they said, "Why don't we sort of buy a version?" Which now is a huge part of the television industry. I mean, you know, it's like uh, the Amazing Race Canada and you know Master Chef Canada. But this was a new idea to take another country's program and retool it uh, a little bit. So they took the toys, they took the the, the concept of it, but they added uh, Pokeru. That was that was the sort okay. of Canadian bent. And yeah, I mean, it was another one of those programs. If you look at it now, it's very slow, uh, very methodical, but it was about creating a, a safe space that uh, children could 
basically use their imaginations. So it was whether they were telling a story or playing in the sandbox. It was about, you know, feeling your emotions and, and, and being calm. And I found even when I was older, you know, at university, it was nice to wake up after a night out and watch Polka Dot Door. It was very calming. Fun fact, my first concert was Sharon, Lois, and Bram. Oh, amazing, yeah. And I guess one of the other themes, as you mentioned, but certainly running throughout the exhibit, is how Toronto shows in their representations of diversity were ahead of children's shows, other shows generally, and other stuff in the States. And you pointed out Polka Dot Doors being an example of that, that maybe the Elephant Show wasn't, but like... Well, no, amazingly, Elephant Show, I mean, the thing I think that was very progressive about Elephant Show is they did a lot with children with disabilities. So you'd see full episodes of that, and that was pretty groundbreaking then. I mean, the 80s, really, there was programs like, obviously, Degrassi, but Dear Aunt Agnes, I don't know if you remember that. Dear Aunt Agnes, remember, you said you'd help me out if you could. Well, my job is taking me far away to move the children just wouldn't be good. If you will say, you will come and say, you'd be the best and a girl ever had. That was an attempt to make a program for kids who were not quite teenagers, but they were not kids anymore. Because uh, there was nothing, there was nothing for that demo at, back then. It, you know, we call those, I guess, tweens now. Uh, but Dear Aunt Agnes was about a couple of kids whose parents were getting divorced. And so they wanted to show the huge number of kids in Ontario whose parents were getting divorced that you could live through it and that there was, you know, other, other ways that you could uh, get help. It was a weird experience being a kid where most of the culture was American, but there was this other space that was Canadian, but it was also often British. And so I'd watch like Dr. Snuggles on, on TVO <laughs> yeah. and like, uh, you know, my name is Simon. Doctor on yeah. yeah, but you never knew if it was British or Canadian. The only way I knew that, that Polka Dot Door was Canadian is because my mom was an actress at the time. And she would tell me, she'd be like, oh, I was into Shakespeare with that guy on Polka Dot Door. Like, oh, that one's gay. Or, oh yeah, yeah, we were in a Ponderosa ad together. And otherwise, because it was kind of like, where do these things exist? They exist in kids' TV land, so yeah. who knows if they're British or Canadian or what. Yeah, I mean, it, just before I get to that, the idea that uh, these hosts on Polka Dot Door, I mean, they were working actors. And there was a host, Sherry Miller, a famous uh, actress from Toronto, and she was the host of Polka Dot Door for years and years and years. But she was also doing commercials at the same time for Spabanti Bambino which is like a cheap plonk uh, champagne. And I, I mean, I just think that's hilarious that you'd see the same girl in a kid's show you know, doing alcohol ads. But um, no, to your point, Jesse, I think TVO was a wonderful collection of, of homegrown stuff, but they would go out and buy these absolutely crazy programs from around the world, animation and you know things like Barba Papa. And sometimes if there wasn't a, a dub uh, in English, they would actually do the English dub. And so there's certain versions of those of those European animated shows that, that are totally lost to time because it was like, you know, the tapes are gone and there's different versions of those shows but with different dubs on them. Who, who dubbed The Green Forest, which scared the living shit out of me? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot. You can go down a rabbit hole on, on, on the web about Green Forest fans that have tracked down the actors and everything, but that was a Japanese uh, animation. Cherise, this is the thing that got you most excited. A couple of years ago, I was talking to my cousin, and we're kind of the same age, and she was like, do you remember that show about the mice? And we couldn't remember. And it took us, like, months and months and months, and finally she stumbled on, like, a Google search, and she was like, it was book mice. And so when I saw this, I was like, it's book mice. <laughs> and I think it's just so funny, because, like, we had zero memory of what it was called. Book mice. Book mice. Behind the wall when no one can see 
I don't remember anything else about the show, but these are probably the cutest puppets here. Uh, they're just three mice and like a very cute cat puppet. Like what is it? What, like, other than the fact that it was more, uh, I think it was Nina, more Nina Kale. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like what? Uh, what was? Was there just? Is there anything special about Book Yeah, just yeah. I mean, there is. It, it, it was originally called uh, the Magic Library when it started, and then it turned into Book Mice. But one of the things, I guess, for a certain people of a certain age, really remember it because it was on uh, when cable channels. I don't know if you remember. Sort of in the mid '90s, we had this explosion of new channels, yeah. which was like the most exciting thing ever because we went from having 24 channels to 40 channels. Uh, and then Discovery was one of one of those channels, and they had a huge kids programming block, and they used to run book mice like eight hours a day. So oh. you would see a lot of book mice, even if you were just channel surfing, you'd, you'd land on it. But book mice was really one of the first shows, certainly one of the the, the biggest shows at TVO that uh, incorporated a lot of indigenous writing in, into the storylines. And again, not a huge deal was made about it at the time. It's like I, impossible to find episodes of it. I think I have two. I don't even know if it still exists at TVO, but it certainly was to me, uh, it's gotten the most recognition in the exhibit from people that had, like you, forgotten that it even, yeah. what it was called. So there was clearly something something to that. What, what do you remember about it? I just remember it was a cool show with like these funny mice and they read books. I just remember being on all the time, like you mentioned, but I had no memory of what it was called. Is TVO worse than other, like others are keeping, had, keeping records? Like the CBC it, seemed like they had The CBC... Do a phenomenal job, uh, and they always have. The problem with TVO, every time there's a change in provincial government, because it answers to the Minister of Education, the priorities change. So I know, for example, when Bob Ray, uh, what what year would that have been? Well, he was like 90. He was elected 90. Okay, so 90. um, That was when the cutbacks started, and some of the first things they did was to start getting rid of the tapes. Um, And back then it was on a format called three-quarter inch. That was sort of the industry standard. Uh, And those tapes, I mean, they're a pain in the ass even if you can find them now to transfer them. But back then they just said, well, we're never going to repeat these. And, you know, they've sold them on to some of the other countries. But then they had their copies of it, so they didn't need to retain uh, some of the masters. So they started getting rid of it. Or they reused the tapes. They just taped over them. And heartbreaking, but there is an institution that still exists who was given a bunch of TVO stuff, and they decided to throw it away because they said, well, why do we need more than five tapes of Polka Dot Door? I mean... You know, it's this attitude that it's all kind of samey and that it's not really culturally relevant that we keep bumping up against. Yeah, and so then you get into the 1990s, and then YTV is, I think, it's the only real private broadcaster that's majorly spotlighted in here. YTV was a national channel, right? Yeah. Like, well, so yeah. How would you describe its contribution to, to all of this? Yeah, I mean, we, start, you know, we talked about how TV Ontario was really the driving force behind trying to get a, a dedicated kids network off the ground. It didn't work out. You get to the mid-'80s, we have this explosion of, of pay TV, you know, much music and, and TSN, and suddenly it becomes a very viable commercial business, right, to, to have a kids' channel. And then you just had, again, a very interesting group of people come together and they were kind of winging it, you know. They they wanted to run that television station like it was a radio station, and they had you know the the PJs who were their their version of the VJs yeah, at much music. Right? The program jockeys, and they were there because YTV showed less uh, commercials because they wanted to be parent friendly. But that meant they had all this time because an, you know an episode of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is 22 minutes, and they're only showing three minutes of commercials. So then people like uh, PJ Phil would literally have to just make stuff up every 25 minutes and uh, you know these guys were great because they you know he'd pick up his guitar or he'd just tell you a story about something that happened to him and again it was that talking to a friend uh, very much re- reminded me of that Fred Rainsbury ethos and again I don't know I don't know these guys it's not like they were sitting around planning any there's just the way that they were making television and it, and and for young people at the time it, it was pretty amazing it was like having a cool older brother you know to come home to after school and I like when YTV started, the late, great John Candy uh, kicked it off with the opening night special. And that was because John Candy got his first television break on a TVO show called Cucumber, hmm. which was directed by Clive Vanderberg. Who in the world are we going to get to help us? What's that? Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Is it the... It's a weatherman. Oh, boy, am I glad to see you. Hey, listen, do you know anything about the weather? Well, my name is the Tomato Man. It's Weatherman. <laughs> of course I know about weather. <laughs> oh, good. Look, maybe you can help my friend over there. 
and a lot of those Second City people, like Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Eugene Levy, they all did time at TVO because back then the only grown-up show that was filming in Toronto was King of Kensington. And, you know, they're job and actors, so they did Second City at night and they did the kids' shows in the day. It's not in this exhibit because it, it wasn't made in Toronto, but there was a show in Ottawa called You Can't Do That on Television, which Nickelodeon basically stole their whole brand from that show. Like the slime was obviously a big part of that program. And again, to this day, everyone thinks it's a US thing, but it was made in Ottawa. Yeah. I think that, that that's the show that introduced me to the term Pinko Commie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And of course, Alanis Morissette got her started. Yeah, there was like, there was some dad character who was like a drunk guy in like a white, you know, we don't call him that anymore, but that kind of t-shirt. And he was, he was like some kind of reactionary anti-communist, if I remember. Yeah, he, well, he was meant to be a sort of a pastiche of Archie Bunker. Because even, I mean, this is the other funny thing. You look at programs, they assume kids know who that all in the family and things like, you know, that you would, there's no cultural relationship to those things for young people now. But that's what I think he was meant to be. And so over here you have like 10 televisions playing. Are these all the grassy Degrassi clips? I mean, I don't know how. Yeah, so it's a mixture of uh, Kids of Degrassi Street, which was the first series from 1979, and then Junior High, which was 86 to 92. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think I said it earlier, it was, to me, the, the most important contribution culturally uh, in television that, that we gave the world. Uh, I think it was, again, because it came out of this idea of documentary, not hiring actors, not really writing it like a drama, uh, more exploring what kids uh, were going through. And, you know, the scale of the issues just kept going up. So in Kids of Degrassi Street, uh, a whole episode might be centered around a sleepover where somebody says something mean about somebody else. And then you get to junior high and it's about, you know, pregnancy. And then you get flash forward to the Drake era and, you know, people are blowing up schools. It's a little bit more Hollywood now. And the actors, they all sort of look a certain way and they all talk the same. But this era uh, is really Martian television because it's just capturing stuff that nobody, nobody was doing. And, and I, I do believe that's why it's insanely popular even still in places like Australia and, and the UK. One of the things I've been thinking about is how we have all these shared culture memories of Canadian children's television shows, but very few of scripted shows made for adults. I mean, the stuff that there is is kind of maybe... Like King of Kenson, I think, is still on. No one would watch it. People, Some people have an attachment to the beachcombers. It looks terrible. I, but, like, whereas you look at this and, like, I could understand what the appeal would still be for a person of a, the correct age. Like, so we were better. Like, it's not just my imagination. Like, there is a, like a shared cultural consciousness around children's television in Canada that it doesn't really exist in the same way for adult television. Um, I mean, I think so. Certainly, there was a lot of interesting stuff happening in adult television in the early days of CBC. Some of the plays they used to mm. do, and certainly when when Moses was at CBC, was doing wild stuff long before he was at City TV. But again, it's not really. Not a lot has been preserved. Not mm. a lot is written about it. But yeah, you're talking about sort of the junky series. scripted series yeah. like Cats and Dog and things like that. There's always like a lot of really interesting nonfiction, experimental types of documentary shows. Like there's definitely a history of that. But in terms of, I guess yeah, scripted series, whether comedies or it, it feels like a much more sparse record. Absolutely, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I said it earlier, I think uh, comedy, children's, and news uh, are the things that we've always done the best. And I, I do think it has been recognized around the world by other sort of uh, students and, and, and professors of television that, that that was happening. But why is it still, there's such pushback to do anything with it? You know, in America, they have the Library of Congress, which provides millions of dollars to preserve episodes of the most obscure, you know, Captain Kangaroo and things like that. Uh, but yet in Canada, there, there's the, the archives in, in Ottawa, you know, it's, it's two, two people in a sled, you know, and uh, they have no money and they have no time. And it's, it's heartbreaking because eventually this stuff will, will all disappear. I mean, it really will. Another question, I just have a question is like, so you, you, you end this exhibit in the mid nineties with YTV and oh, I mean, it's called Mr. Yourself to Degrassi. Why did you decide to end in the mid nineties? 
it's the number one question for visitors to the exhibit. And the reason was that by the time we got to the mid 90s, there's a bunch of change in the air. You have the internet is already starting to take a pretty big hold. Uh, you have a lot of co-production starting to, to crop up. So whereas before these programs were 100%, you could call them Toronto programs. Now we were seeing co-productions with HBO, co-productions with the BBC. And so there's a lot of globalization going on and they start to lose some of that uh, sort of what we say is the authentic Toronto vision. But the main thing was then you had all the independent channels uh, getting corporatized. So YTV was bought by Chorus a couple of years later and everything kind of starts to get a, bland, a bit blander. It is a bit safer. And things like uh, the Concerned Children's Advertiser, I don't know if you remember them, they start producing a lot of public service announcements and stuff that they used to sort of handle, let's say in a program like Degrassi or in Dear Anne Agnes, migrates from narrative television shows into PSAs. And again, they did a wonderful job, but it was less of an issue in the mid 90s for them to do it on, on TV on those programs. Uh, was that like the House Hippo? Yes, House Hippo. Um, uh, don't put it in your mouth. Not Astron. That was a different one. That's an, that's another classic. But no, the the ninety four uh, January one ninety four was when Warren Grog, who's that green grotesque puppet behind you, him and his friend Phil, and there's the footage playing. They literally hijacked the YTV satellite, and they just showed the programs they wanted to watch all day. So they showed like two hours of Adam West Batman and just random movies. And it was, you know, I was in university at the time, but I was really fascinated with this idea that, you know, it was kind of a punk thing to do. Meanwhile, PJ Phil and the good grogs were outside the building. That's now the Zoomer building, by the way, but they were trying to uh, get in and, and regain control of the satellite. And then the, the next day, the grogs disappeared and they were never mentioned again. And basically it was because the puppeteers were fired because they didn't sign a contract literally giving the ownership of the grogs to oh, YTV. Wow. And that's when they were replaced by Snit, the talking television monster? Uh, Snit came a couple of months later, okay. but yeah, that's right. That's right. So yeah, it seemed, and, and again, the, the symmetry or the, the bookends of Chichimus and, and Warren Chester Grog, it seemed like a, like a nice place to end it. Beyond the nostalgia bomb, what do you hope people come away from this exhibit thinking? I hope they come away with a sense of pride that, that we were on the vanguard for a lot of this stuff and that, that there were these things that were maybe they weren't aware of before. Even if they take away one factoid, you know, that they can break out at a dinner party and, and talk about why these things are important. But I think more than that, we just wanted to do a show uh, that made people happy. The one thing that unites us is this idea that we all grew up watching these shows together. We had that shared experience and, and it brings us joy. So. Thank you. Is there yeah, anything else? I, I wanted to ask, so you mentioned um, for a lot of the shows, like there's no tapes available or not a lot of tapes. What's one show that you wish there were more tapes for? Oh boy. Uncle Bobby was on from 1967 to 1980, and CTV doesn't even have one episode of it in their archive. Like, it's entirely gone. Was there was a program TVO made that was shot at the ROM in the 70s called Secret of the Samurai that has all kinds of, it sounds incredible, um, again, with no budget, uh, about a ghost of a samurai, you know, terrorizing children at the ROM. Okay. I swear yeah, I've yeah. seen that one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was it was shown in, in classrooms, um, but it's totally gone. Like, there's not a frame of it anywhere, uh, unfortunately. I mean, there's a, there's a lot, uh, but I, yeah, I would say those are probably the top two. So. Could I have, like, a minute with the puppets in there? Yeah. Okay. Uh, actually? Yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I'll meet you just a... Okay. Okay, okay. I don't know what you want to do with the puppets. Resolve some issues. Okay. <laughs> face some fears. That is your Canada land. If you value this podcast or anything we do, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll get our exclusive newsletters, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis and help keep our work free and accessible for everyone. Come join us now. Come on, click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com join. We are still on Twitter at Candleland, and our website is Candleland.com. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and you can email me at Jonathan at Candleland.com, though I will be off on vacation by the time this airs, so I don't know, bother Jesse at Candleland.com. Much gratitude to Ed Conroy for taking the time to walk me, Jesse Brown, and Shuri Suturin through the exhibit, and to him and the Museum of Toronto for putting it together. 
Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Our audio editor and technical producer is Tristan Capacchione. Our managing editor is Nea Jofo. And our new editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Our theme music is by SoCalled. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, whom you can visit online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Candleland ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Bonjour, tu es un ananas? Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.